Well, good morning. It is a joy to be here with you this morning, and it's also a joy to bring you greetings from Danny Jones, who requested that I do so, and that is a delight to do. Uh, I have to tell you, before I even get into anything else this morning, uh, Danny is a dear friend. I don't think he put these ladies up to this, but there's there's a small contingency of ladies from Metro Life Church over here that you may know. To my left, your right, and uh, so I, I think they're here as friends, not spies, <laughs> right? I, I think so. I think we've established that, but what a joy to see familiar faces from Metro Life, our new home church uh, as a family. Uh, I'll mention my wife, Melissa, who is seated here in the front next to my son, Bennett. We have a daughter, Anna, who is in children's ministry right now. We have two other children. Paige is our oldest, she's 11, and Ellie is six. They were going to be with us, but uh, just to give you some idea of how it's been for us transitioning out of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Orlando, uh, they're already behind because they've been invited to some birthday parties this weekend and have made some fast friends at Metro Life Church. So as much as we miss them, it's actually a blessing that they're back there because it's part of what we've been praying for, that God would quickly knit our family, especially our children, into the church as this is a significant change for Melissa and I, but for our kids, a change unlike anything they've ever known. And so we are actually very, very grateful to God for giving them that opportunity. As uh, Al mentioned, uh, we, uh, we've come from uh, a church called Grace Community Church north of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where I served there in a similar way that Danny Jones has been serving Metro Life Church and the Southeast region of Sovereign Grace Ministries. Uh, If you're a guest, all all that means is that uh, we believe as a family of churches in providing care for the local churches uh, to provide a a context for pastors and leaders of churches to uh, pull together uh, and care for one another. And so that's that's kind of what this is all about uh, and Danny has been doing that faithfully. My hope is, is simply to build on the good work he's been doing uh, as he turns his gaze back to full-time service at Metro Life Church in Orlando. So we have had a wonderful couple of days with Alan Desiree, with Corey and Cindy, Jose and Christina, and with Jason and Judith. And I've got to tell you, though, Jose, uh, a couple of times, uh, those of you who know him and his boxing history, uh, it's just been awkward a couple of moments this weekend. He's kind of looked at me, and I've, you know, I've just been on edge. Like, is he, is he like looking to go? And what I didn't really tell him is some of my own history. So I, I may not look like much, but I just want you to know, you know, just come on, okay? Just step down, okay? Because, you know, okay? <laughs> I, I would actually love to have seen some of those days because it just uh, testifies to how kind God is, Jose, to transform our hearts make you a man now who's after God's own heart. So what a, what a great weekend. It's been hearing stories uh, together. Well, we ended last night, and I think it's a fitting transition into Zephaniah chapter 3, which I would ask you to turn to right now in your Bibles, to Zephaniah 3. We ended our evening together last night, just if you will, uh, I don't even know if this was really planned, but it kind of happened, just hearing love stories, how uh, each of the couples came to discover one another, the couples being the leadership team here, and their story that led to their engagements in marriage. So really, we had the opportunity just to celebrate some love stories last night, and I think that's exactly what we're going to see here in Zephaniah 3. So would you read with me Zephaniah 3, 14 to 17, what a fitting song to segue into the message this morning. Let's read these verses together, and then would you pray with me? Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Here's the reason why. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. and You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak, for the Lord your God is in your midst, 
a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I believe Zephaniah 3, 14 to 17 offers us this. And by way of a title, our God rejoices over us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your presence here in our midst at Palm Vista this morning. Thank you for drawing near to us as a demonstration of your great love. And thank you for giving us your word to which we now turn that is alive and active and through your spirit intends to accomplish something. This morning, Lord, would you accomplish what your word declares? And that is that we, your people, all in this room who profess you as Lord, would know your love. Father, we know that we will never exhaust knowing your love. So my prayer would be that we would know your love more deeply, more intimately. And Lord, we would pray together. If there are any gathered here, who do not yet know you as Lord, who have not yet turned to your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom alone is all forgiveness of sin and in whom alone we have access to you, might they come to know your love for the first time. We would pray together. Take this text and do what only you can do. Pierce, penetrate, and move upon our hearts. As our loving Heavenly Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In speaking with Al about a potential message for this morning, we were talking, and just as, you know, we're still early on in the new year, we thought, what a, what a truth to get our hearts around, to set our eyes and hearts upon this reality as we go through a new year, a truth we need reminded of every single day. And as I'm new here, just give you a little bit of our history. Uh, June 29th, 1996 was an exhilarating day, and it was a fearful day all at the same time. It was the day Melissa and I were married. That was the exhilarating part. Getting married, if you're single, is definitely exhilarating. Would you agree, married couples? Yes, it is an exhilarating day. That, well, mine in particular maybe doesn't, doesn't describe yours. It was also a fearful day. Uh, For this reason, primarily, uh, Melissa had requested that we sing a duet together at the wedding. I'm not a singer uh, by any stretch. Uh, She would politely say to you, his voice is fine. Read that as it's really not good. Certainly not good enough to be doing a duet. In fact, the only two people who commented on how well I sang that day were my mother and my grandmother. And that doesn't count. That, that, if, that, if that is the whole assessment, you know, your mom and grandmother, that may not be enough data to launch a musical career. <laughs> Melissa sounded great. It just simply should have been a solo. But why, why did she request that? Why a song? Or, or what is it about music and a song? Would you, would you agree that, you know, while a letter can be powerful to convey, poetry is obviously wonderful. But there's something about a song that emotes, that communicates on a whole other level, just powerfully. There's something, something in song that, that conveys the depth of emotion and strength and passion of what is being communicated. Uh, th- think of it with me, you know? Uh, those of you old enough to remember Brian Adams' concerts and things like this, I like to laugh with my wife about these things. People don't usually throw roses after a poem is read. Oh, but after a song, the roses come flying. And so there's something about song. And that's exactly what we've got here in Zephaniah 3. A declaration that God communicates his love in this way. With loud singing. Our God rejoices over us. In this passage in Zephaniah, we have more more than 
poetry. We have a song, a song from God, where he's communicating this simple but life-changing truth to you and me. I, the Lord, rejoice over you with gladness and loud singing. Now, if I, if I asked you to raise your hand in response to this question, do you know that God is a rejoicer? I'm going to guess even without knowing you, most of us, if not all of us, would put our hands up. Yes, we know that. We know that Scripture would teach that God is a rejoicer. However, if I asked it this way, how many of us live consciously aware and in the good of this? God not only rejoices generally, no, God rejoices specifically over you and you and you. By name, God rejoices over you personally with gladness. He delights to do it. He's so glad to do it. He's so delightful in doing it that when he does it, he does it with volume, loudly. I wonder, would as many hands go up? Would there be as much confidence to quickly raise your hand to declare, I know that's true. I'll just speak from my own life. I can put my hand up quick to the first one. Do you know God's a rejoicer? I know that. Now, and go ahead. Put what you believe to be one of the most recent displeasing to God actions you've committed. And with that thing in view, ask yourself again. Do you know God rejoices over you, over me, with gladness and with loud singing? See, if we're honest, we're hesitant. And we're hesitant not not merely because we're humble, I think, if you're at all like me. We're hesitant because, well, we can live far more aware of our unloveliness than of being loved. We can live far more aware of our sense of how far we still have to go instead of living in the grace of already being completely, wholly, totally accepted by God. Or maybe just simply this. You know what? I just, I fail God. I grieve God far too often to have the kind of confidence you're talking about, Aaron. You talk about New Year's, Aaron, as I assess 2010. I just, I don't see that I really made a whole lot of progress in my personal walk with the Lord, I just don't have this confidence. Listen again, please. Consider that area of your life, as I consider for me. Consider that sin, perhaps, that seems so stubborn, almost immovable. When will this change? You have that in view. If you're at all like me, you don't even have to think very long. They're just, it's, it's more like, <laughs> did you just say just choose one? <laughs> I can feel like there's a lot to pick from here. No, just choose one and listen. The Lord rejoices over you with gladness and loud singing. How is that so? Let's see how it's so from Zephaniah. Just briefly, a little bit of background on Zephaniah. He was a prophet during the time of King Josiah of Judah, the southern kingdom. And he was, if you study the kings of Israel and Judah, one of the very few bright lights among the kings. Uh, One of the very few who actually sought after God. In fact, it was King Josiah who found the lost book of the law in the temple. And upon reading it, he sought the Lord and tried to reform the people of Israel, who by that time were steeped in idolatry and had drifted far from God. Think about this. Josiah found the lost book of the law. Do you remember what God had commanded the kings to do every single morning with the book of the law? Read it. Read it. Obviously, they hadn't been. And the book had been lost. Josiah found it. And along with Zephaniah, the prophet of the day, God began to speak. And the prophetic call that God gave out to Judah is found in Zephaniah 2, verse 3, where we read, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do His commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. So there was a call, a merciful call from God for the people who at that present time were steeped in idolatry and drifting far from God, a call to come back. Well, sadly, 
Judah and Jerusalem as a whole did not listen. And it was only another 20 years after Josiah's time as king when the Babylonians came in, sacked Jerusalem, and off they went into captivity. But here, here in chapter 3, is a promise from God and a song for those that did listen. Now, you and I today, on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, we have a far greater understanding, at least we have the, the potential to have a far greater understanding of how profound these verses are, because these verses find their ultimate volume, if you will, in Christ crucified for you and me. Nothing sings the love of God like Jesus Christ upon Calvary. Amen? Nothing sings it like that. And so this song, it's, it's alive for you and me today. It isn't just a song that was sung in the past. It is a song being sung by God today because of Jesus and through Jesus and his glorious gospel. What a song. The Lord rejoices loudly. And the Lord rejoices loudly because the Lord is glad to be in relationship with us. And this is, I believe, what our God wants us to know and live in the good of and embrace. That that God didn't send Christ merely to create a way to tolerate us. But he sent Christ to create a way to be in a relationship where he enjoys us with our sins removed out of the picture because of what his son accomplished. And so from the heart of God. It wasn't enough just to, just to declare us justified, accepted, righteous. No, he sings. He sings with volume. Our Heavenly Father is a singer. Why or how? Why does God rejoice and exalt over us? I want to offer just two, two reasons from these verses this morning. Why does God rejoice and exalt over us? Here's the first reason. God rejoices over us because of who he is, not who we are. Amen? He rejoices over us because of who He is, not because of who we are or what we do. See, what makes this astounding in its context in Zephaniah is who God makes this promise to. Remember, this is a wayward people, by and large. In fact, Zephaniah could rightly be described as a book of judgment. It's a warning that if they don't turn, They're going to be given over, which most of them eventually were. But in the midst of that, we find God as the initiator, the heart changer, and the redeemer. In fact, in Zephaniah 3, verse 9, we're told this, just, just accenting how God is active. It says, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. See that? Their speech was impure at this time, but God is going to change their speech. He's the initiator that's going to do that so that their speech becomes a pure speech and through that that they all may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. Verse 15 of chapter 3, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Verse 17 declares, I, the Lord, I am a mighty one who will save. So throughout Zephaniah, that's just three examples, but throughout the whole book, we are brought to our attention, what it is that God will do. Not what we're going to do, but what God will do, who God is. He's the initiator. He's the one who does everything good. And is that not what amazing grace is all about? It's God. He's going to initiate the changed heart. He'll change their speech to a pure speech. He'll be the mighty one who will save, and he'll be the one who'll rejoice over them. He does it all start to finish. Everything good for us. Think about this throughout Scripture. The initiative of God throughout Scripture. One passage that comes to mind is Psalm 103, where we read, The Lord, the Lord, a God, you know this verse, many of you, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. That's Psalm 103, but did you know that's not the first time that's declared or recorded in Scripture? You know where it comes for the first time? in the book of Exodus. And you know when? Right after Israel crafted the golden calf and bowed down and worshipped and called this thing created with human hands the God who delivered them from Egypt. And God speaks to Moses. And he says to Moses, here's God's 
response. Yes, there was discipline. Don't misunderstand. But his heartbeat response was this to Moses. Moses, the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. And abounding instead fast love. And I can't help but wonder about the intentionality of God to convey his love that way to Moses. Because you see, Moses was often quick to anger with Israel. In fact, it was Moses' quickness to anger that prevented him from escorting Israel into the promised land as he struck that rock quickly in anger. But the Lord, slow, Slow to anger. Now think about this with me. When God makes this declaration to Israel, I am slow to anger and abounding instead fast love. Was Israel at their best? Were they in their best day of devotion to the Lord? Or were they at one of their lowest points ever? Right. One of their lowest points ever. Having just been brought out of Egypt by God, crafting a false god. And declaring, this is the God who brought us out. It's on that day. That day, God declares his steadfast love. Our friends, God singing over us has always been at present and will always be about him and who he is. Not us, who we are, what we have or have not done. It is staggering when we consider it. And think of it, more than that, Having someone sing over us, now guys, it's okay to admit this, it's actually something that beats in all of our hearts. Right, guys? (laughs) Nobody responded, guys. That's beautiful. I know we've been led to believe that's not macho, but here's what I mean. We've been created, all of us, men and women, to be in a relationship where we're loved and rejoiced over. That is what God created us for. And that hasn't changed. Sin's corrupted it, but it hasn't changed that fundamental idea. In fact, think of a young couple. Think of a young lady. What, what would be one of the things she would desire from a young man? I think I can speak accurately for you ladies. You would like that young man to delight in you. You want to know that you're cherished. You want to know that you're precious in his sight. Well, guys, God wants us to know the same thing in his sight. And so what does he do? He sings over us. And you don't need to be married on the earth to know this kind of love. Because this love comes from God. He isn't content to merely sing softly or quietly, but with volume. I love that. I'll rejoice over you with gladness. I'll exalt over you with loud singing. But listen, this idea that we discover the love of God on our worst of days, is that not the message of the gospel? Didn't Romans 5, 8 declare it this way? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While Israel was at their lowest, they encountered the love of God. And it's no different for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. So I believe we've got to get our hearts around this. God rejoices over us simply, wholly, entirely because of who he is, period. That's who God is. Secondly, why does God rejoice over us? First, because of who he is. Secondly, because the love of God is a benevolent love. God rejoices over us because his is a benevolent love. Look at verse 17 with me. Remember who he's addressing, a wayward people. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will destroy A mighty one who will wipe out? A mighty one who will not tolerate? No, no. A mighty one who will save. And then when he saves, what what does he do next? Now picture court of law with me. Does he acquit and then say, get out of this courtroom as quick as you can. I don't want to see you. No, no. A mighty one who will save, and then what does he do? Rejoice over you with gladness. 
You see, verse 17 declares, friends, we're not merely tolerated by God. We're not merely accepted by God. We are embraced by God. We are held by God. In Israel's worst of times, God stays near. In our worst of times, God stays near. And he quiets and he saves and he does all this while rejoicing with gladness over us. This verse has a parallel in Isaiah 62 verse 5 where we read, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What is God trying to communicate to us in Isaiah through these anthropomorphisms, if you will, where he, God, the Holy One, tries to use human imagery to help us get how much he loves us. So what does he do? He takes us to a wedding. Hopefully, most if not all the weddings we've all been to are happy occasions, right? And hopefully, that groom, when he hears the creak of those doors in the back open, and he turns, he's overcome with rejoicing. He's also overcome with a question. Is this not so, guys? What is a woman like that? You can finish it. There's rejoicing. There are few human events like that moment. Maybe God could have also chosen the illustration of the birth of a newborn baby. But these, these, these human experiences that are filled with a level of gladness and joy that few other things can compare. That's what God uses to try to help us get our hearts and minds around His love for us. How, how, how do I feel about you, my people? Here's how. Picture that groom on the day of his wedding, seeing his bride. Commenting on this passage, the ESV Bible, study Bible, says the following. I love this. And may this minister to our hearts. Boldly drawing on a familiar human image of inexpressible joy and delight, God says his delight in his people will be like that of a bridegroom's delight in his bride. Isaiah explains that in God's great plan of salvation, he not only forgives his people, protects them, heals them, provides for them, restores them to their home, reconciles them to each other, transforms them so they are righteous, honors them, exalts them above all nations, and makes them a blessing to all nations as he's called them to be. But more than all these things, he actually delights in his people. I love that word, actually. I think the ESV study Bible commentators have caught on to something. We need that word, actually, because we struggle to get our hearts around this, don't we? Especially on our worst of days. God actually, really delights over me and over you. He actually does that. I love that word. It's actual. It's not theoretical. It's not Maybe it's actual. He actually delights in and over his people. Now think about how different the love of God is from this world. Now it's a bit dated now, but go back to the unfolding saga that was the Tiger Woods story at the end of 2009. And really nothing's changed. We could illustrate with so many things. Have you noticed there is in our culture with its 24-hour news cycle a delight in malevolence. Not, not benevolence, but malevolence, the opposite. There's a delight in it. There seems to be this sinful joy, a delight in ill will and malice. Like There's, there's like this smug self-righteousness that comes across like where as a culture, we love seeing people get knocked down. We love seeing the prosperous brought low, humbled. We love their junk being broadcast over the airways. And I'm not saying you or I personally, but as a culture. Why in the world do human hearts enjoy the downfall 
of another human. And more importantly than that, what, what if God treated people, his people, like people treat people? And sadly, I believe you to be a humble people without even knowing you. What if God treated his people like his people sometimes treat his people in the church? He doesn't. He doesn't. See, our culture looks for smoldering wicks that are human beings' lives. And our culture loves to pounce and snuff out that wick. And God says just the opposite. A smoldering wick, I will not put out. Our culture loves to see a bruised reed that is a human being. And just go ahead and finish the job. And smash that reed. Not so our God. A bruised reed. He will not break. Why? Because His is a benevolent love. When we are at our lowest and worst, our God delights to protect, exalt, and to uphold, not to crush or curse. Think about that smoldering wick imagery. You know, you're outside, maybe you've got a flame, you're trying to light a fire, but you've got to protect it because the elements are just trying to snuff it out. That's our God, protecting, keeping. No wind of turmoil is going to snuff it out because our God's love is a benevolent love. It's not based on our performance. It's based on his own. And so to Zephaniah, to the repentant, the humble and the lowly, God says, I'm going to sing over you with gladness. I'm going to be the mighty one who saves. God, listen, God does not look on our shabby state and mock. He doesn't. He doesn't. He simply doesn't. He doesn't look angrily at our guilt. He doesn't frown with indifference. He loves and he rejoices. I remember thinking about this not too long ago. My six-year-old daughter, Ellie, back in Orlando, she'd had one of those... uh, I don't know if any of you parents read any Mercer Mare books to your kids over the year, but she was having one of those no good, terrible, bad days kind of a day, you know. She's a gem. She's a princess. She happens to be a sinful gem and a sinful princess, much like her dad is a sinner. Well, she'd had a hard day. And it was all over her face as she went to bed. And I'd love to tell you that this is true of me every day. Sadly, it's not, but I'm believing God for more and more of these days to be the case. She needed no lecture. She needed no revisiting of the failures of the day. She just needed to be held. And we do two things, Ellie and me. I say squeeze, and she squeezes me with all her might, with all her like 40 pounds. And then I say coffee kiss, and she plants this long, press-into-your-face kiss. And then I just said to her, Ellie, this is one of her favorite things to do. We haven't figured out how we're doing this in Orlando yet, but we're working on it. Ellie, let you and me sneak out to breakfast tomorrow morning. Let's get up early. Sneak out. I love you. Not... Let's go out to breakfast tomorrow because you performed so well. Let's go out to breakfast tomorrow because you're my girl. Period. You were my girl before this day got started. You were my girl before you did anything in this day. Friends, I fail on that point so many times, but even when we feel the impulse, do you know where that impulse comes from? It comes from God. Because that's how he is treating us. Because his is a benevolent love. I'm trying to love my girl. I hope my wife, I hope my son, my other daughters like I'm loved. Now, we can be honest together. This is simply hard for some of us, isn't it? Not intellectually. Not to mentally assent. But to actually 
There's that word again. Believe this and live in the good of this and experience this. Some of us, I think, can more easily believe the notion that God's love for me is a begrudging love than a benevolent love. Almost kind of like, well, he's God. He's supposed to love, right? God is love, so he's kind of obligated himself with that self-description. He's kind of on the hook for that. No. His love is not begrudging. In light of who I was, in light of who I sometimes still am, I certainly can battle with this. How can I be loved like this? We can wonder things like, how can God hate my sin and yet love me at the same time? So much that he would sing over me. How can he rejoice over me? Friends, if you're in Jesus Christ, you know the answer. He's the answer. Our substitute is the answer because when we are looked upon by God, He doesn't see the mess that we are. He sees the treasure that is His Son, that treasure being credited to us. Jesus is why God sings. He's how He sings. And I love how John Piper says it. He says on this idea, we must banish from our minds. What a great word. Banish from our minds forever any thought that God admits us begrudgingly into his kingdom as though Christ found a loophole in the law or did some fancy plea bargaining and squeaked us by the judge. No way. God himself, the judge, put Christ forward as our substitute. And when we trust him... God welcomes us with bells on. He puts a ring on our finger. He kills the fatted calf and throws a party, shouts a shout that shakes the end of creation, and he himself leads in the festal dance. Amen. This is God's love. This is what the parable of the prodigal son is all about. It wasn't, son, go get yourself together and then come back and we'll talk. It was, there comes my son. Go get the calf. Get my ring, get my robe, and call for a party. When one sinner repents, all of heaven rejoices. That's the heart of God. So let me ask you, as I ask myself, do you know God this way? Now when I say no, I don't mean knowledge. I mean experientially. Do you know God this way? If you don't, then who is your God? Or let me ask this way. If if we have trouble believing God is singing over me today, when exactly will he start singing? What what are we going to do? How How many perfect days are we going to have to try and string together? to get God's attention. That perhaps then, he'll start rejoicing. Oh, friends, you know this. We're sinful and we're flawed. But the declaration of Zephaniah and ultimately Christ Jesus our Lord is that we're loved with an everlasting, immeasurable, unable to calculate, unable to search out love. We are loved like this. You know what I love about verse 17? God knows our hearts. He'll rejoice over you with gladness. But you know what? It's hard to hear God rejoicing when the song of condemnation is playing loud, isn't it? And so what does God do? The next part of the verse? He quiets us. He quiets us with his love. He knows us. I want to sing over you. You can't hear me sing over you right now, can you? Because the song of condemnation is louder. So what does he do in his love? Quiets us so that we can hear. Think of that. Parents have small children. Your child is crying and you're trying to convey something encouraging. They've done something, you're trying to help them, but they, they, they can't hear because the tears and the guilt is overwhelming them. So what do we do? We just hold them and seek to quiet them so that they can then hear our love. Oh, we do that imperfectly, but we feel it, don't we? Parents, that is our impulse at times, isn't it? The difference between you And I and God is this. That's his impulse all of the time. All of the time. To quiet us. To quiet our condemnation. To quiet our guilt. To quiet the drift that we drift into, which is a a belief that if I perform, I'll hear. If I perform, I'll hear. Instead of I hear because that's who God is. 
as I uh, move to a close here momentarily, I just want you to know if you're someone here this morning who often hears the song of condemnation more clearly than the song of God's rejoicing. I understand that. I relate to that. I was on a, uh, a personal retreat a while back. And uh, I went out in the morning. I was out on Cape Cod, one of my favorite places on the earth. If you've been there, you understand. And I was walking on the beach. I'd park the car in this little parking area, start the walk on the beach, and something on the ground, something that I saw, triggered my past. And what had started out in intention as a prayer walk began as a condemnation walk. Just, it wasn't even any one sin. It wasn't, I had, it wasn't that I'd done something that day. Or they were just, just sin big in my life. Just, just who I am and feeling the distance between God and myself. And these were from things past and that I knew intellectually were forgiven. But you know how it is. Sometimes that song is still playing real loud. And some walking, and I think in just a still small voice, God began to speak and said, Aaron, I know you. And kind of started this dialogue. Like, I know that you know me. But, but it persisted. No, no, I know you. I knew you then, and the then being all those things that were flooding my heart in that moment, condemningly. I knew you then. I know you now. I know all there is to know about you. I know how many hairs fell out of your head when you combed it this morning. I know you. And I got to tell you, this was, it wasn't encouraging. As I was thinking about being known, I just physically was shrinking on this prayer walk. I mean, I probably could have frightened someone had they come around the bend. I was literally low in condemnation. Went on. I know you like you don't know you. I know you like you'll never know you. I know your every thought. I know your every desire. And there was just a little pause. And then this is in my soul what I heard. And I love you. Period. God knows it all. And he loves us. And in his kindness, he'll quiet us. You don't have to go to Cape Cod to get quieted. You can be right here. He'll quiet us so that we can hear. Ah, friends, God does delight to make much of us. I can't explain it other than to say, in the mystery of his ways, it displays his glory. He delights for us to know and live in the good of this. We're loved with an everlasting love. I don't know if your reed is broken today. I don't know if your wick feels as though it's going to go out. But I do know this. It won't break. And it won't go out. Because you're loved by God. He delights to make much of you. I do believe he would have myself. I do believe he would have you, all of us, grasp this more deeply in this year. Why? Think about the difference it makes the more we live Alive to the reality that God loves us so much. He's singing over us. Think of our relationship with the Lord by way of application. What difference would it make that we could live in the good of being accepted instead of trying to be accepted? What difference would it make if we don't fear separation because we know he'll never let go? What difference would it make if we were confident my wick won't go out because God is committed in his love to protecting it? Think about, think about relationships in your home. What difference would it make to be lavished in the love of God to become lavishers of love instead of in any way leaving an impression that as you perform, you'll experience my love more? Son, daughter, wife, husband. How about when we confront the weakness of others in our home? What would a tenderness towards their weakness instead of a tolerating their weakness? What difference might that make? 
And the reason we're growing in our tenderness is because we're experiencing the tenderness of God towards all of our unloveliness. I don't know anyone more unlovely than myself. What if, what if we revealed God to our children instead of misrepresented God to our children, knowing that our children's image of God is largely shaped by mom and dad? What if our spouses knew we were for them instead of the opposition? In our relationships with others, what if we were so slow to envy and malice, but we're so quick to be part of God's kindness and making sure their wick doesn't go out. I love how Randy Alcorn said, he said, oh, there's much that's wrong with the world and there's much that's wrong with us. But he's the carpenter from Nazareth. And carpenters not only create, they repair. What if we're that kind of people? That's our privilege. That's what God has made possible because of his love for us. We can... We can be a people, we can be a church that knows the joy of bringing encouragement, celebrating grace, of expressing thanksgiving, of of wanting to help people hear God's song over them because we're individuals who are experiencing it ourselves. Oh, if we'll meditate on this, friends, what difference it might make to know the Lord rejoices over you with gladness and loud singing. Listen, uh, as the worship team returns, as I went out and prayed this morning, I was asking God to please come near in specific ways. One of the things we see in Scripture, particularly in the Gospel stories, is that one way that God would reveal His love for individuals would be through specific personal ministry. And as I prayed this morning, I'm sure you're well taught on this. I, I do believe God gave me some prophetic impressions. Let me say at the outset... As scripture says, we, we prophesy in part, so I'm not assuming that these were all accurate. But as I prayed, I believe the Lord provided some categories and that if you find yourself in this category, the reason God has revealed it is because he wants you to actually know his love. So I'm going to share these and, and listen, they, they might even on the surface, a couple of them, they might even seem, wait a minute, I thought this was about the love of God. That's actually convicting Oh, friend, anytime God convicts, it's to do what? It's to show us love. It's to draw us to himself. And so I offer these, and then we can pray. Maybe some individuals here who are stuck. That's the word you would use. I am stuck in a pattern, a particular area of your life where you would say, the very thing I don't want to do, I keep on doing. God can't go on loving me like this. Friend, I believe he wants you to know and identify that for you because he wants you to know his love for you through that stuck sensation you feel, but also that by his love, there's power to get unstuck. There's power. There's a depth of your own experience of his love for you that will cause you to love him more than you love being stuck in that pattern. I think there's a marriage or two where there has been some subtle bitterness, even biting words, and both spouses have thought, ah, what what happened here? There was was warm affection and endearment. Where, Where did we get off track? And there's been conviction in both hearts, but at the same time, there's been a waiting for the other to make the first move. I'm ready to repent when they do. Well, I believe God wants to meet you both and take you from bitterness to a fresh embrace of one another, an embrace you haven't had in some time. That embrace would flow from God's love for you that melts that stubbornness you've had toward one another and just draws you back together. Some others, God's love feels far off because far off love is all you've known in earthly relationships or primarily what you've known in earthly relationships. And perhaps it's caused you to believe a lie that, and this may relate to ladies, some ladies in particular, that maybe the way I'll experience love is as 
as I focus on my outer beauty. That, that seems to have gotten attention sometimes. You know it's a lie, yet you've bought that lie. I believe the Lord would encourage you. You're, you're loved dearly by God. And in His perfect time, it will be your inner beauty that shines through, that gets the eyes of the perfect one God's chosen for you. So don't pursue what you've been pursuing, the outer beauty or that person that is not the one God has. And instead, rest in God's love. Know this, young lady, your heavenly Father delights to court you today. And I think there's a couple of healing categories. Someone with a migraine that very recently altered your plans. You had to redirect your plans because of this. These may sound bizarre, but again, I just want to be faithful to share them and leave the results with God. Someone or someone's here with numbing sensation in your face. Just describe it as, it's like I had Novocaine. I think there's a child who's been ill for a prolonged but undiagnosed period of time. And that's causing anguish. I think God wants to heal. Can we stand together? Heavenly Father, I just want to confess right now. I want to confess my fear of man and even sharing these things because the thoughts that can run through my mind are, what if these are wrong? Uh, It doesn't even matter if they're wrong or only partly right. If, Lord, ultimately what they are is an expression from your heart. And so, Lord, I would pray for us all right now that we would actually know the love of God. I would pray for that individual who would be here, who over weeks has has maybe not even been able to describe that their heart's been being warmed by you, but perhaps today's the day where they know salvation. They come to know this love. Oh God, grant them the faith to respond. And I would just ask now, if I could for a moment, this is not for my benefit, I trust you know that, but if you could just close your eyes. And could you just slip up your hand if any one of those words you believe applied to you? Could you just slip your hand up ever so briefly, okay? You can put them down. Listen. Here's my conviction. I think it's yours. Why would God do that? Because he wants to demonstrate his love. You and I know there's no greater demonstration than the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, if we never saw another earthly demonstration, we wouldn't need one. Because we've got Jesus. But God in his benevolence delights. Al, I'm not sure if this would be typically how it's done. But I I would just encourage you, come forward. Those who... I'm not going to call you out or say, hey, it was you, you, and you. But come forward and have the pastors and leaders pray with you. And let's believe God together for a fresh encounter of his love.